This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year the low. There are, of course, the Stephen Bradbury of He was the big spender. Right. The big spender. Doing Mr. the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs. Economist, Summer Edition. We'll be back with our usual program on February the 2nd, but today we've got something a little bit different for you. This is the first part of another panel discussion. You might have caught the first panel discussion on the last two episodes, Is Economics Broken? Uh, this is another one that Thomas hosted at RenewFest in Mullumbimby. And RenewFest bills itself as Australia's festival of full system regenerative change. The topic of this panel is the weaponization of confusion. Personally, I reckon I'd be confused why I was the only person in the mosh pit. I don't care if it's an economics festival, I'm starting a mosh pit. Anyway, if you've ever found yourself wondering how to separate conspiracy hype from the truth, you might enjoy this discussion. If not, we'll be back with our usual comedian versus economist format on February the 2nd. Enjoy. All right, welcome to a very special episode of Comedian versus Economist. We're coming to you live from RenewFest in Mullumbimby. Say hello, Mullumbimby. Hello. Oh, I think we blew all the levels, but thank you very much. Uh, we're looking at the weaponization of confusion, looking at the way information and misinformation is working uh, right now and how that's the impact that's having on progressive change movements. I've got a very special lineup of panelists here today, so I'm just going to introduce them very quickly. Over there we have Robin Grill, one of the stars of the festivals a little while later, one of our dear uncles is how we think of him. He's an international speaker, psychotherapist, and parenting educator. He is the author of three books, Parenting for a Peaceful World, Heart to Heart Parenting, and his newest title, Inner Child Journeys. Part psychologist, part historian, and part anthropologist, Robin's work is animated by his belief that humanity's future is largely dependent on the way we collectively relate to our children. To find more about Robin Grill's work, go to robingrill.com. But please, welcome Robin Grill. Thanks, Tom. Our second panelist right next to me here is Damon Gamio, or probably also needs no introduction. He is a filmmaker and author. His two documentaries, That Sugar Film and 2040, now sit in the top four highest grossing documentaries of all time in Australia. Is that right? Wow. Do you give it up for that? That's amazing. Uh, his book, That Sugar Book, has now been translated into nine languages. He was a New South Wales nominee for Australian of the Year in 2020 for his work creating the Regeneration Movement, and he was asked to speak at the 2019 UN Climate Action Summit in New York. Please welcome Damon. Yeah. 
The rat bag in the middle is Craigus McVegas, sometimes known as Craig Mason. He is a veteran political campaigner and the co-founder of the Mongolian Ecoculture Foundation. He is currently working as a campaign coordinator on Mandy Nolan's bid for the federal seat of Richmond. He is a research scientist by training with a master's degree from the University of Melbourne. He's also a music producer and the host of Bay FM's Sacred Music Show on Sunday mornings. Please welcome Craigus. Now, before we get into the panel proper, I've started with a bit of a CV list and a list of achievements, but I want to sort of first stop in and with what drives you as individuals. So if I can just get a quick mission statement from what's driving you in the world and what you're trying to create and trying to bring. Damon, if I kick off with you. Uh, I guess uh, um, most of us are here because we know that our species uh, is at a pivotal moment right now and um, everything is up for grabs. And uh, I think that... We've relied too heavily on uh, statistics and graphs um, and data to try and move people. And I think we've got to tell stories. That's how we've evolved. So this my is an economics podcast is um, to, <laughs> to ignore economics and tell better stories uh, and a new story of economics. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I guess I'm motivated by shaping uh, collective narratives and informing culture. Thank you, Damon. Craigus? Uh, I guess I'm trying to enact systemic change and I see that by trying to leverage the systems that are in place to the maximum ability to get the outcomes that we want. Beautiful. Robin? Well, being, being uh, burdened by being a psychologist, <laughs> I like to look under the hood. I love to find this, the backstory behind um, our, state, our current state of urgency and emergency. And quite naturally, it takes me to look in that childhood and how we relate to children in a collective sense. That's the message that I bring. I find that to be, uh, if not the only, definitely not the only, but one of the most powerful drivers of what conditions the, the next society that is to come. And there's, a, there's definitely need for the next, out with the old, in with the new at this moment. Never been so urgent. There's never been a threat that is felt by every single being on the planet before unprecedented so um, i'm here to do my job and that is it thank you <laughs> thanks tom all right so i'm one of the programming crew at renew fest and this is a topic that we really wanted to touch on and really didn't know how to touch on it um and for me personally 2020 was a really interesting year um particularly feeling like the way we had the sort of the social media phenomenon, we live in the social media age, we're fracturing into thought bubbles. And then in 2020, I really felt that in my community and I really felt that in Mullumbimby. And I felt, found myself in, in deep confusion, like feeling like there were these com competing narratives coming through. I didn't know what, who to trust, where to turn to. I found myself at odds with people that I thought were firm allies. I felt I you know, lost friends through that process. Well, Facebook friends anyway. Um, um, but yeah, but found myself really like, feeling like I want to engage. I want to keep my community together. I feel like as in the progressive movement, we've done so much great work over the years, building solidarity, building a collective vision, building allyship, and really felt that start to, to splinter and um, felt that in my heart, like uh, I, I felt a lot of grief around that and really didn't know what to do with it. And so what we wanted to do with this panel, we felt that this, this must be something that progressive movements through the ages have had to deal with. 
2020 gave us a particular version of it, but it must be something that wherever you are at in through, through human history, if you're campaigning for good, managing information, managing the information hygiene, keeping out the false stories, making sure people understand the, the relevant stories, um, that's got to be, that's a sort of a universal human experience. And so that's where we wanted to anchor this conversation today is to sort of look at that um, and kind of think about how we as people advocating for change, wanting to drive change, how we engage with information and how we, how we manage this whole process, if it matters. And that's another question we want to look at. To open, I wanted to go to Craigus and I wanted to look at a specific story around the idea that the Greens were responsible for the bushfires. This was, a, this was a meme that took off and even in my circles, which are very progressive and my thought bubble is very progressive, this is something that I'm seeing people posting about and going like, how, how can that even happen? So I'm kind of interested, looking at a, a, the meme lifestyle, like where does a meme come from? Where is it born from? How does it disseminate? How does it get legs and survive? So I'm gonna throw to Mason for that. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I was really pleased to hear people laugh about that. Um, but it's a really serious issue. Like for an area like ours, which is progressive, you've got a lot of people that can see that's ridiculous. Um, but for a lot of Australia who have one source of news, and that's the only piece of news they've heard that seems to make sense. And we're like, how can that make sense? These greenies are trying to save the world. I guess if you look at the culture that surrounds someone, and if that, uh, the greens have been demonised for about 30 years now by the mainstream media because they do pose a threat to the status quo um, so if you believe that the Greens are coming for the economy and they're going to destroy your jobs and they're going to do all the drugs and they're going to just you know and they're bad people and you don't know anyone that votes for Greens, you never met a Greens voter no one in your house, village, whatever town votes for the Greens, you might think okay the Greens are terrible and then Miranda Devine in 2009 straight after the bushfires puts out an editorial and it says it's not climate change that caused the fires, it's the Greens uh, stopping the hazard reduction burning. Um, and the only person she quoted in her article was a lobbyist from the forest, from the forest logging lobby um, in Victoria, who hated the Greens obviously because they're in the forest there trying to stop them cutting down the trees. And he's like, yeah, the Greens are stopping the, us cutting down the trees. She said, there you go, the Greens are stopping people from doing hazard reduction burning. It's the Greens' fault. We haven't done the hazard reduction burning. Um, now, at that time, I just got a scholarship to Melbourne Uni to do my PhD on how forest fire affects water quality. Um, so I was really deep into how forest works and how forest fire works. So that's that was my expertise in geophysics. I was doing building physical models on fire and how fire affects water quality. Um, so, you know, it's like the idea of the Greens being responsible and, and after the 2009 bushfires there was a lot of research that was done and all the experts were asked and it, yeah, of course it was climate change the, the bush was really dry it didn't matter how much bush there was there you couldn't do all the hazard reduction burning because it's just too hot and it's too dry so it's too dangerous um, and huge forest fires they burn in the top the canopies of forests so and they, the ashes go up to 10 kilometres so once the fire's in the top of the forest it doesn't matter what you've got at the bottom of the forest. Um, but the way this is used is if, if you have an idea that something might be true <coughs> and you hear something, it reinforces your narrative. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the idea of confirmation bias. 
And so something that may seem like a joke to us makes total sense to a lot of people that just need something to seize on. So the idea was seeded in 2009. At that time, the Greens had the highest vote ever in Australia. Um, and just after that, they um, formed a minority government with the Labor Party and got through some really great climate action. Like the only time Australia's um, emissions have gone down was that period with Julia Gillard. Um, but that took seed, that idea, and it only took 2000, you know, it grew through the community and in 2019 with the big bushfires, it was repeated again and it had got to a point where it was accepted. Um, completely false. So, and it's been sort of borne out by a lot of people that aren't politicians, just scientists and other people that are in that space, rural fire services, they're like, it's just a myth that won't go away, but it's propagated by powerful people who need to keep burning coal. So I'm, I'm really interested in this point here that you pick up about that people needed to latch on to something. The facts took, took second place to the emotional connection. I want Damon, if you want to pick up that, I know you work in propaganda. Is that something you think about? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all propaganda, let's be honest, yeah. Um, yeah, I think to go really, I guess, at a deeper level, I would say that in this moment we are uh, suffering a meaning crisis. So that the the sense of religion, that story has kind of been eroded, and this story of um, liberalism, individual empowerment, materialism, people are also feeling that that is failing. So we have this vacuum situation, and humans' nature doesn't like vacuums we search for patterns of meaning and so along comes COVID in particular when we're certainly thrown in this chaotic state that it makes complete sense that these types of conspiracy theories start proliferating and spreading because that's what we do as human beings. Um, but when you add that to um, a sharing and communication space or an information ecology that has been hijacked by the perverse incentives of capitalism and that, that infrastructure, there's no regulation at all because we've thrown it out the window. You just get this um, really messy space where it's impossible for us, for any of us, to make uh, collective sense-making or meaning. And uh, John Glubb was an English historian who looked at the collapse of different civilizations and he said that the, the first thing that went when a civilization collapsed was the population's ability to collectively make sense. So here we are in this moment where we're dealing with a climate crisis, a biodiversity crisis, income inequality, racial fractured democracies, all these issues. And we don't know actually who's right or who to believe. And so the whole place is, I would say our information ecology is as polluted as our environmental ecology. And so then, um, then a more subtle form of denial, I say, because um, uh, what Craig is referring to is absolutely right. We have a media in this country that is controlled by largely one man who has 70% of the newspaper distribution. All our mainstream media networks are owned by uh, largely men with links to extractive industries, mining or whatnot. So they are the gatekeepers of a narrative in this country that doesn't allow these new ideas or thoughts to come through. But I'd also add, and I think we let them off the hook far too much, is that our, our mainstream storytelling, our, our blockbuster narratives, our series, it's also a more subtle form of denial because we can't keep pretending that these things aren't happening around us. Yet we all watch Netflix, we watch these movies, and we are numb to the reality of what's actually happening. 
and, and I see them as, as analogous to a magician's trick. It's the clicking finger where we all look over there to avoid what's coming next. And what's coming next is, the, is this catastrophe and none of us are talking about it. So unless we can develop better ways of sense making, and we can maybe get to that, what that looks like, um, we're, in, we're in serious trouble. Unless we can um, regulate these entities that are able to, to spread this disinformation, um, and again, this is something not new. This, I mean, the, the word disinformation was actually coined by Joseph Stalin in the 20s. And then the Russians really developed this idea and taught their KGB agents to um, try and destabilise other democracies by using mimetic warfare, creating ideas and narratives like the CIA created AIDS to wipe out African-Americans. That was a very carefully constructed ploy that took place in the 80s. And they saw the success of it. And now they do it on a massive scale. But so does China. And so does the fossil fuel industry. And so do all the other, these other groups. Um, the fossil fuel industry spent a billion dollars a year to pollute that information ecology. Um, so I know that all sounds pretty cataclysmic and dire. But um, I think we need to raise the literacy of that's what we're all playing in. We're all being pushed into different camps, tribalised. I'm right, you're wrong. It's a win-win uh, environment instead of um, a social platform of re res resolution how good would that be if we incentivized coming together and resolving things instead of winning over and, and forming tribes so there's a shitload of work to do is what I'm saying but I think it starts there's a great quote that understanding is one half of the solution and I don't think enough people understand yet what they're swimming in when they're playing in those social media spaces even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Robin, I might throw to you here. I know you're dealing with parenting and dealing with the way we raise children, dealing with childbirth, this was something where there was a really received wisdom. It was medicalized, institutionalized. And we have seen quite a radical shift in the past, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years. How do you see that playing out? And, and have you personally encountered pushback from those institutions or how have those institutions given way? All of the time. Although I don't necessarily tangle with institutions directly, what I tangle with is kind of cultural um, waves in a sense in my, in my workshops, my online stuff that I do, talking to people. Is that a strategic yeah. choice to, to focus there rather than advocacy it's, and campaigning it's, it's an accidental choice that's who i ended up being i work alone i'm a lone ranger you know i don't know how to lobby that's not part of my my um weaponry as, as it were um <clears throat> but i think with the thing of propaganda 
and as a kind of an armchair historian, I, I think of propaganda as, as water. When you have a house, you're always finding another place where the water's creeping in. There's not enough flashing that you can put up. There's not enough anything that you can put up. It's been going since the dawn of time. I remember when the Romans were invading the British Isles and some of the pretexts they used is Celts are these savages who, who um, engage in, in human sacrifice. Oh, shit, they don't do that, do they? Let's civilise them, said the people with a coliseum, right, where families go and eat popcorn in the weekends watching people butchering each other. So it's, it's the, there's a mad artist that I met once who said to me, whoever owns the symbols owns the people. And I thought, you're a real mad artist. But those words sunk in over the years, and I realised just how profoundly true that is. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? Can you break this? What does it mean for you now? What it means for me now is that you can... It's frighteningly easy to speak with a voice of authority, talk complete crap. I mean, desperate crap. Give you a quick example. A wonderful experiment that was done. I wish I could remember the authors, whatever. They got a paid actor who sounded very professorial with all the right grey, you know, bits, the snow in the, in the beard and all of that. And a square jaw. You must be male, must have a square jaw, deep voice. They set him up to give a, a lecture in a, in a um, theatre in a university and only invited academics, PhDs, professors. A huge lecture theatre. And trained him. They just... They collectively designed a lecture that he would give that was full of non sequiturs. In other words, you know, things that, that does not lead to that at all. Okay, nonsense. But the instruction was speak with the voice of authority. Okay. And then they do a survey with the people listening in the crowd. Over 80% of these academics, who we revere as intelligent or whatever, we're so impressed by what he said, and they'll say, so believable, so credible, etc., 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 which is a beautiful kind of a little keyhole glance at, I think, uh, um, a phenomenon that is as old as civilization. What terrifies me now is that with all of the sophistry of modern psychology, the, 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 the um, I guess, the, the, the methodology of information manipulation is so much more sophisticated and that I do believe personally I'm desperate for more regulation if every you know my belief is the more power you have the more responsibility you have the more regulations on you you should be naked in a goldfish bowl subject to scrutiny every minute um, and we're we're a regulation free zone since neoliberalism you know the one i mean since the 1970s right because we're in the illusion of a bipartisan system there's only one party both owned by the same people the the shared agenda of the corporate world is zero regulation even when they hate one another and they compete which explains why non-related companies like big tobacco are into climate change denialism. They don't care about petrol, but they just don't want regulation. What they're terrified is that a government representing people will, will regulate. I agree with that, but uh, I think that won't come fast enough. I think the manipulation can only be as successful 
as our trust. And the reason why so, 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 so many of us are complete sitting ducks, including me, I've fallen into some horrible traps and been sued, rightfully so, because I believe something to be true because it was on the fucking internet. And this was, okay, that was me as a rookie. Um, but that's what happens. So what we, we, what we haven't taught ourselves, what we haven't taught our children, this is where the child bit comes in for me, is healthy decoding, healthy skepticism of everything. Because the obvious agenda is big money, corporate profit. That's the obvious one, but it's not the only. People also will narrow your viewfinder for reasons of identity, for reasons of religion, for reasons of power, for reasons of culture. So that if you say three syllables to me on paper, I don't need to condemn you at all. I can still love you as a brother. But to ask, where does that come from in you? And that then we're not sitting ducks anymore. And I think the problem is trust. That's the problem. It's a kind of a counterintuitive thing to say at first. And that's alarming, isn't it? We should be able to trust each other and all get together and be loving. But all human beings, and this is, I'll finish in a second. This is uh, the now understood by neuropsychology. Every last one of us, narrows our view according to wishful thinking and fearful thinking everybody you know if you have wisdom don't ever trust my books that you read from me because i cherry-picked every fucking page in that book i did and i was i tried very hard not to but how how self-honest can i be you know it's limited i'm a human so we, we all are filtering I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed and fearful hearing that. I'm, I've, I've, in my picture, ne- in my mind now, I've got billion-dollar corporations with an agenda to deceive. I've got people in the middle cherry-picking facts who, l- with a limited ability to s- discern f- truth for themselves. And on the receiving end, I've got people who are deluded by a handsome man with a square jaw, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't know where to place my hope in that story and, and I'm feeling like and then the internet age and social media comes along and just throws a whole bunch of petrol fuel on the fire I want to Craig Damon is, where are you are you feeling hope here are you is there an antidote in there somewhere that I'm missing or is, it, or, or is this just a sort of a teething pain phase we're moving through I think so yeah. <laughs> Handsome man with a square jaw. We're all right. <laughs> um, I think that the internet is a new way. It's almost an evolution of our species. It's become, we're becoming like a hive mind as far as information is shared. And I think because it's such a new technology, I think the next step from the internet is, you're going to hate me for this, blockchain technology. And that is decentralizing everything. And I think you can decentralize information and how it's trusted. And there can be trustless systems that that trust is in an AI that cannot make a judgment based on anything but its programming. Wow. 
Well, I, I mean, I'd love to. I don't know if any of that made sense to you, but I mean, that's I, I where I'm it. at. Well, yeah. I mean, when I when I was a young activist in my twenties, I like we recognise media is the problem. It's it's corporate owned. It's one person owning seven percent of the media, and indie media was campaigning a, a dream of decentralised media where people were, had control of the media, promoting their own stories. The early days of Facebook are like, ah, oh, this is this is happening. Like people can post whatever they want. So and much potential. So much potential, and then that just seemed to go That's really sideways really quickly and to the point now where activists are sort of asking facebook to censor people because there's stories out there and so teething problems for so, a new so technology how, so how does so, yeah, so how talk us through very quickly this before we let's not get too techy but how could something like is was COVID created okay. in china how would an ai help uh, us so you know wikipedia for example this is a information source that is built by millions of people and because it's built by millions of people it's decentralized information so if someone writes something false or crazy on wikipedia you'll get a bunch of experts going oh, i'm an expert in this blah 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 and they'll fight it out and experts really love to be right and they and they argue for it all the time um so if a piece of information for example came from face someone posted something on facebook that could pass through a whole bunch of different nodes, experts in that field, um, and be verified as true. Uh, and it could, this is just an idea, it could be given a score of how truthful it is, plus or minus one, two, three, minus one to five. And that score could go through all through the network that checks it for its truthfulness and then is attributed back to whoever posts it. So every, I guess, everybody that posts on social media would have a trust value. And we could see, everyone could see in a way that whether what they have to say and what they've had to say in the past is trustworthy. And that doesn't rely on anyone but a big collection of experts. It's like and a strength in numbers kind of idea. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's how nature works. It's how ecology works. And yeah, the more systems you have interrelated, then the stronger the system is. And this is where, and because of our system of information, so new it's just so new and all we just have to look at nature and how that works and if we that's an idea anyway interesting damon you want to respond to that your thoughts there yeah i mean i i do i um i can see the potential of that but what i get nervous about it, it, it we've had these conversations before and if we're applying anything new to the existing architecture of this system it eventually gets hijacked corrupted corroded because of the values that we have established within that system so i'm seeing even now in this decentralized space that people are buying land in a decentralized world they're paying lots and lots of money companies are advertising in an artificial space for people that are putting their headgear on we are still commodifying the internet because it's still tied to this structure that we have in place completely yeah so that's that's the danger there um that this is it more dangerous than the whole planet dying to try it out or is it too late well i think that we um we have to acknowledge that um whether it's the food industry whether it's um the fossil fuel industry whether it's social media all, all these problems are deeply interrelated because of that flawed architecture mm -hmm. Uh, and unless we're starting to think about a wholesale system design, which again, blockchain decentralized could play a role as we pivot to something else. But um, as you would have seen, so many people with the best intentions have come up with these ideas, 
but after a short amount of time they get pulled in because of the inertia of the current system and the whole good ethos that it started with gets completely undermined. So that's not to sound too pessimistic because I do think there, there is terrific merit in, in some of these things that are going on. But the three things that give me hope in this space are... Um, uh, one, there's a, a, if anyone hasn't come across it, the Centre for Humane Technology, Tristan Harris, who's a, is a real pioneer. He was the, the gentleman who put together the Netflix film, The Social Dilemma. And they are, he's working with a lot of interesting organisations to develop new platforms, new ways of connecting and having discussions and, and sharing information. Another guy is a, a man named Daniel Schmachtenberger and they're doing a group called The Consilience Project and that's very interesting where they are, they've got a team of people that assemble all the narratives on a particular topic, whether that's uh, hydroxychloroquine or climate change, from all different sides of the fence. They bring all those in together, then try and find the truth within those, cross-check, fact-check, and then present that information in a more balanced way. Because I think that's another issue we haven't discussed is that we're all, we're all so time poor that we outsource our fact checking and our deep referencing now. It's so much easier just to see a, a YouTube video we like and pass it on. We don't have the time to do the fact checking. Um, and the third one there is that there was a paper recently about this need to actually deem this information problem we have as information warfare. That now that there is strong evidence that Russia and China and other countries uh, like during the Black Lives Matter protest, were deliberately choosing memes to inflame the, the scenario on by both sides, that this can now be deemed as something, we, we know land warfare, we know air warfare, this should be mimetic warfare and declared as such. And that might give, uh, speak in a language that governments understand, that they might think about this regulation discussion. If it's seen through that lens, then they can start to take it seriously. Send it's in a, the TikTokers. <laughs> yeah, it's that the, the, the a lot of countries aren't spending that military spend on the big that they know they can actually destabilize the society by the information and be far more potent than sending weaponry. So it's a different form of weaponry. So I feel like that conversation has shifted even in the last couple of years, especially during COVID uh, and all the flack that Facebook is getting now that, um, you know, it's that that's been brought to the light. And that's, I guess, obviously the first step in some kind of change. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you enjoyed that discussion or are enjoying that discussion, I should say, then make sure you come back next week for part two of the weaponization of confusion. Don't forget, we'll be back with our usual comedian versus economist format on February the 2nd. And I look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.